0: Greetings and welcome back to The Dive, the podcast series in which we examine passages that were studied in the last week's Daf Yomi in depth, allowing us to explore issues of methodology, development of Pesach Halacha, analyses of the Rishonim, etc. Uh, this is the second part of a two-part uh, piece on the Sugiot of Chanukah. My name is Yitzhak Yet Shalom, and last week's where we looked at um, the... Existence of the uh, of the sugyot of Hanukkah in the second parak of Masachat Shabbat, why that is there, why there is no masachet devoted to Hanukkah. I devoted significant time to the history of the Mishnah, and the development of uh, of that piece of literature, and why Hanukkah, Some of the theories as to why Hanukkah did not merit its own Masachet and almost no mention in the corpus of the Mishnah. And then we studied a few sugyot from the first pass section. In, on the handout, it's the first three sugyot. Uh, in this shiur, we're going to quickly uh, review what we did last week, uh, quickly do number four and focus on five through eight, uh, and analyze them. As you can see, the handout with this particular shiur uh, takes the first page from last week, but adds to it, and then has a whole second page, uh, which hopefully will highlight uh, some of the issues of the shiur uh, as we go along. Um as I mentioned in in uh, in the last shiur, uh, when we study the Gemara, we are not looking at a composed text, but we are looking at a series of chronological layers of quotes and discussions, uh, debates and disputations taking place over the course of really about six seven six hundred years or so. Uh, when we look at the earliest Mishniyot that we have, that go back to just the pre-millennial era and and going all the way into the 6th century, uh, and we're going to talk about that 5th and 6th century period uh, later on in the Shior. Uh, And so when we will explore some of that, but some of a different kind of layering that goes on that we didn't discuss uh, in last week's Shior that will become critical for us understanding these Sugiyot. Uh, to review in the first sugya that we looked at, which is not the opening piece in Masachat Shabbat about Ner Hanukkah, but it's sort of the starting place for a lot of people who study uh, this this passage. And for many people, this is an opening into Gemara. We noted that uh, the sugyah, uh presents a Braita Tana Rabbanan, and describes mitzvat Hanukkah on three levels, which we right away noticed was itself bizarre because... Uh, and really unprecedented there is no other mitzvah that's presented in halacha as having a basic way to do it And then a better way to do it and then a best way to do it uh, And the that was part, part number one part number two was that the word used to describe the improved version uh, Is uh, is really a strange word hamahadrin. strange only in the sense that it really doesn't appear in Tanaitic literature anywhere and the truth is it doesn't really appear in what we might call amoraic literature um, and I'll explain that when we get to uh, to some of the issues of uh, of of um the sixth century when we talked about that. Uh, and then the uh, further strange thing was the fact that mahadrin, Minha mahadrin, the ultimate level, which again is an unmatched phrase anywhere else in in the literature, uh, there is where the Mahaoka Bicham Hill all exists. so the Bicham Hill are disagreeing evidently about how to do the ideal, super-duper way of fulfilling the mitzvah, and we were bothered by that. Uh, we noted that Ulah, who is one of the Nechute, one of the people who brings Torah to Eretz Yisrael, to Bavel, reported a dispute in Eretz Yisrael uh, between Rabbi Yosef Ravina and Rabbi Yosef Ravine about the reasoning behind Beit Shammai versus Beit Hillel. Was it to correspond to the days coming, the days that have already passed, or something to do with the Beit HaMikdash? And we talked about that at length in the last shiur. And then we had another report of one of the nuchute, Rabbi, Rabbi Marchanah, reporting in the name of Rabbi Yochanan that there were two elders in the town of Saidan, One practiced following Beit Shammai, One practiced following Beit Tilel. Uh And the, the the evidently the statement was quoted in order to support the position that the Machlokah Beit Shamai was not about announcing which days which day it is, but rather uh, about whether to approximate. The particular model of Pareh Hachag or the broader model of Malim Bakodesh from the Beit Hamikdash. However, we noted that in that story, there's something strange: is that here's a report from the later part of the third century, and Beit Chama Beit Hillel are both kept as options, and nobody's upset by the fact that somebody's practicing Beit style. style. Uh, and so, these are all questions that we posed. Uh, the next thing we noticed in sugya that I've marked number two, although that follows right in the Gemara without a break from the previous one, is that, And um, I noted that uh, the grammar here is a little bit strange because Mitzvah um is really a, a Babylonian take because in all of the Bavli um, uh, wording that we have of Hanukkah. Ne'er Hanukkah is treated as a feminine um, word, and therefore mitzvah um However, as you can see, uh, we'll take a look at this on the next page, uh, in all of the Eretz Israel material, Hanukkah is treated actually as masculine. so It's a little bit strange that here it says mitzvah l'hanichah. Al petach But at the end of that piece, we also noted that it said it was shata sakana when there's danger... And if you look at footnote number three on this page, you will see that Rashi, in the commenting on the Sakana, says the following, That the Persians had a rule that, uh, that on their holiday, you can't burn a fire anywhere but their pagan temple. And he quotes the Geron and Of course, there's a story later on in Shabbat with this. And the problem, of course, is this is both geographically and temporally problematic to put into a breitah. Because remember, we're quoting a breita here that the that chanuk has to be placed outside, but during times of danger, he placed inside. Uh, the breitot, we assume, were composed during the 2nd century and maybe at the very beginning of the 3rd century in Eretz Yisrael. And here, Rashi is referencing a historic epoch that only begins in the... After at least one third into the third century, and maybe after the middle of the third century, and only in Bavel, when the Sasanian Empire had come to rule and had empowered the Chabari, the Zoroastrian priests, uh, to uh, actually act on their religious beliefs publicly and uh, confiscate uh, fires, etc., uh, as part of that practice, that that's much later. So it's kind of problematic. Um, and just noting that, if you look at footnote one you recall that we noted that Rashi, in his interpretation of Mahadrin, seemed to read Mahadrin as an Aramaic word, Mahadrin achar So we asked all of these questions. We looked at source number three, which was Rava's introduction of what we know as the shamash. And we noted that uh, when you have the uh, Ner Hanukkah, you have to have Another candle, the Ora, and from the development of the ruling here, it seemed as if the reason was so that everyone passing by would recognize that the candle lit is for ceremonial purposes and not utilitarian purposes. And so if somebody sees you sitting outside reading by a candlelight in the dark, they assume the candle's there for reading. And so therefore, if you want to read... Uh, or do some other use that needs light, that you have to have a second light so people recognize it. And that's why the Gemara then said, but if there's already a bonfire going, you don't need it because, of course, anybody passing by sees a bonfire or an electric light or something else that's bright and then the candle is clearly for ceremonial purposes, and then the exception of the Adam Chashuv. However, uh, this, of course, became very problematic because... If we assume that after the first night of Hanukkah you're going to have multiple candles, then even without a shamash, anybody will realize that they're not there for use, that they're, for, that they're not there for use. That they're for a ceremonial purpose. So why would you need a shamash? And at the very most, Rava should have said that on the first night, uh, or according to Beit Shammai, maybe on the last night you need a shamash, but he doesn't qualify his statement, and it seems like it's true at every point. That took us up to sugiah number three. Uh, and that's where we went to in the last session. Sugya number four I just put in um, for general interest because we're not really going to analyze it, but it's a, it's a, a central piece. Uh, and sugya number four comes from what is evidently uh, the oldest halachic work that we have, at least that was uh, written, and that was Megillat Ta'anit. Megillat Ta'anit was composed in the uh, first century CE, and Megillat Ta'anit, Uh, was actually composed along the way over the course of maybe 100 years. uh, It records different dates in the history, chiefly of the Hasmonean kings and of the Prusci rabbinates, uh, in which victories uh, were, were, they had victories, national victories, religious victories, military victories, and the days on which those happened were marked as days where you were not allowed to fast and in most cases, days you are not allowed to eulogize or mourn. It's kind of in our verbiage, what we say, a day you don't say tachnun. And uh, and all of the days listed, 37 different dates or periods, like a seven or eight day period um, uh, that are listed there are all relegated to history. They're not practiced anymore. As a matter of fact, one of the days that's listed there is a Yom Nikanor, which is the 13th of Adar. And in an ironic twist, that's the day that we actually do fast as Tanit Esther in a normal year. But the only two holidays that are mentioned in Megillah Tanit that remain are Chanukah and Purim, okay? And so the Gemara asks the question, um, um, my Chanukah?" right, which is an interesting question. They seem to be saying, like, what is behind this Chanukah that we're discussing, where to put the ner, how many nero to light, or something of that sort. The Tanah Rabanan. And this by itself is worth a whole shiur, but not for us today. But we'll just, we'll read it through. The Tanah Rabanan, the rabbis taught, and this is a quote from Megillat Tanit. And what is, what is sort of a counterintuitive uh, twist the core text of Megillah Tanit is in Aramaic, because Megillah Tanit was really written as a luach, as like a list of days on which you don't fast, and the commentary, which is several hundred years later, which we refer to as the scholion and there are a few different versions of it, uh, is in Hebrew, so it's a little bit of a sort of Opposite of what we're we're accustomed to, and here is the scholion in the version that we have here, and it contains what is universally the most famous story about Hanukkah. <speaking in Hebrew> when the Greeks came into the Hechal, they uh, uh, they uh, defiled all of the oils. It's unclear how they did that. Did they do it just because they were touched it, or did they use them for pagan purposes? <speaking in Hebrew> There's is a little bit of anachronism when the Kingdom of the Hashmonaim overwhelmed them and beat them. Of course, they weren't kings yet, but that's what they end up being known as. They checked and they only found one vial of oil that was sealed with the seal of the Kohen Gadol. Again, something that we really don't have a record of anywhere else. In this version, we read there was only enough oil to light for one day. In some of the versions, it reads there wasn't oil enough enough even for one day, uh, what we're referring to is lighting the seven-stem uh, candelab- uh, seven candelabra, known as the menorah in the Metamikdash. A miracle happened. And they were able to light eight days from there. Uh, Well-known, the Shana at another year, and it's unclear when that year was, they established them and made them as festive days with halal and hodaah, and that's the background of the, of the holiday. Parenthetically, when I say L'Shona Acheret, the question is how much later that was. So Marcel suggested, at least based on the Rambam, that the mitzvah of Habakat ner Hanukkah was really only instituted after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And uh, the reason for that would actually be fairly straightforward, that the Hanukkah was celebrated during the times of the Mikdash as a Mikdash holiday, as a celebration of regaining the Mikdash and regaining sovereignty, um, and it was only with the destruction that there was uh, an, an impetus to create some way to commemorate the holiday without a mikdash, and the simplest thing was to take the one practice associated with the mikdash that you're allowed to do outside. We can't bring offerings, we can't offer up the incense, but we can light a candle, and therefore that seems to be what where, how that came from. We're going to bring that back in uh, when we start analyzing the sugyot, but just want to mention that. Okay, sugya number five. Is very straightforward. Toshma da Amarava, Rava, fourth generation Babylonian Amora. Hidlika bifnim vehotziah. And here's an example of what I mentioned before that in Bavel they referred to Ner in the feminine. If you lit it inside and took it outside, Loasaklum. And the reason for that is, a, a, for us, tangential, which is the question of samitzvah, oh, samitzvah. is the mitzvah done when you light it or when you place it down? And this supports the idea that it's done when you light it, and therefore it has to be lit in the proper place. You can't light it indoors and take it outside. My The reason I brought this was just to show the gender, though, of how Babylonian sources deal with Nech It's feminine. Now, Amar this is more substan- substantive, Ravuna, uh, again, pavli, second generation. Chatser sheyeshtha shnei So we have a courtyard that has two entrances. So picture a courtyard of a property that's on the corner. And so let's say that one entrance is on the north side and one entrance is on the west side. Right. So it has two entrances. Tzwecha shtei It has to have two nerot, meaning a ner here and a ner there. And the Gemara goes on to discuss the reason for that. It's because of chshad, that someone will suspect if they don't see a nair at your courtyard, they will suspect you don't have one on either courtyard, or they won't know that you have another entrance, and they'll think you're not fulfilling the mitzvah. And we're obligated to make sure that nobody thinks that we're not fulfilling mitzvot v'tem Mashem Hashem Yisrael. The Mishnah uh, Shkalim, based on the Pasukim Bamibar, Um and um, and that's that's its own sugya. But the interesting thing is that Ravuna says Yidishtei Well, what about the second night? Wouldn't you need four? And then wouldn't you need six, and ultimately need sixteen? Why does Rav Huna just mention two? And now take a look at this: the last, which are all ba'vli sugyot. Rav Yitzchak Huna again. Rav Huna, ne'er fiot Olal bnei Adam. If you have a Nair that has two openings, so picture a uh, a ceramic candelabrum with a well for the oil, and then two holes on top, and you stick a wick into each hole and so you've got two wicks coming up separately. They're not touching each other. They're separated out, and you light them. It counts for two people, two people. Why doesn't Ravuna say it'll count for the second night? He says it counts for two people. And source eight, which, to be honest, I really divided from source seven because I wanted to get eight things in here uh, for Hanukkah, but source eight, which is Ravah, Says, Milek, and notice that the order that of these sukyot is Rav, rava, ravuna, ravuna, rava, nice little chiasmus. That's just after the fact. Mileik, so this is picking up on ravuna. If you have a bowl and you fill it with oil and you pop a bunch of wicks in, adam. if you put a clea over it, meaning a Kli that has a bunch of holes and the wicks pop out, so you have 10 wicks popping out then it counts for that many people. Now, what does that mean for that many people? But if you didn't cover it with a kli, then it's like a bonfire. And then it doesn't even count for one person um, uh, because uh, it's not a candle, it's a bonfire. Okay, but again, the same question that we asked about Ravuna, both in Source 6 and Source 7, we could ask about Ravah here, which is, why does Rava say that if you have a bowl full of oil and you pop a bunch of wicks in, let's say 12 wicks, and you put a clea that has 12 holes, and so you have 12 wicks coming out, and it says that if you light them, then it can count from 12 people. Why don't you say it'll count for two people on the sixth night? So why, again, is the focus here on always on multiple candles counting for multiple people, but not for multiple nights? Uh, and so that's the question we want to move on with. Um, before leaving source uh, page one, I just want to point something out in the footnotes is going back to the first Sugya, which we're going to return to right now. The opening Sugya, Mitzvah Chanukah, Ner Yishuvay Toh, Mahadrin, Ner Locholachad, Vechad, min Mina Mahadrin. So now, what's Mahadrin, Mina Mahadrin? So we find a machloket, a very famous machloket. It's the most famous piece of Torah in Chanukah. A machloket between the Rambam and Tosvot about what mahadrin Minha mahadrin in practical terms means. When you read through the sugyan, the way that we studied it, it seemed like there was a basic way to do things, a better way to do things, and the best way to do things. And the best way to do things builds on the better way to do things. So there's step one, then you do one and two, and then you do one, two, and three. And that's the way the Rambam reads it. If you take a look at the Rambam in the, in the footnote, the Rambam from Perikdal and Halakha Bet, and the longer quote, I didn't have room for it here, the longer quote is, how do you do this mitzvah? So the basic mitzvah is to light one candle per household. And wrote uh, Somebody who wants to beautify the mitzvah. He reads it not like Rashi, but to beautify the mitzvah. Uh he has et and not achar. Um, he lights He lights candles per the amount of people in the house, which means the it's the one lighting it doesn't light one. He lights per if, if you have seven people in the house, he lights seven candles. Cholacha uh, ben Hashim counts everybody in, however many people in the house that's how many he lights, and then v'ham the ba'ader continues. the Rambam continues, again I didn't have room here, if you want to do more than that, then you light per amount of people in the house and on the second night you light two per amount of the people in the house, and then he gives the example so that you're clear that if there's ten people in the house the first night you light ten, the second night you light twenty until on the last night you light eighty candles, that's the Rambam that's the Rambam, Tosfot in source two and here we can see the whole Tosfot, says as follows: Va min ha is Rabbeinu Yitzchak, Yitzchak of Dampierre, who was Rabbeinu Tam's nephew, his sister's son. Uh, and he was really sort of the beginning of the, uh, the Tosafist school. Uh, it all starts with the Ri and his students. Uh, so that puts us in uh, early 13th century uh, in, uh, in France, um, late 20th century, late 12th century. That Bechambed Hillel are referring to Ner Ishu Beto, meaning that the third level is building directly off of the first level and skipping the second, which means according to Tosvot, what the brighta means is basic mitzvah is one candle per household. One better way to do it is per people in the house, but not changing the number. A different, perhaps better way, improved better way to do it is to have one candle the first night, two the second night, but only one per household. Right? And he says, because that's more glorious, more beautifying. Because then everybody can see it when you either add or take away candles. It's counting towards days up or days down. If you have a candle for each person, even if you keep adding on each day, you keep adding candles. Nobody will know what day it is. Imagine this. If your custom is Mahadrin, then that means that you have the amount of candles per people in the house. So let's say you have four people in the house. So the first night somebody walks past these four. okay? The next night somebody else walks past these eight. They figure they got eight people in the house. And by the end, you got a party of 32 people. They won't know that you're adding knights. Uh, and so Toswit says it won't. It, mahadrin Mina Mahadrin defeats itself if it builds on Mahadrin. So that, that this is a very famous machloket. And then uh, we take a look in further in this footnote in the Shulchan Aruch, and we find what is known as one of the oddest um, developments in in halakha, is that the Rambam who by and large represented a tradition of Sfarad, comes from the tradition of the Rif, and was widely accepted throughout the world of Sfarad. Um, uh, The Rambam uh, here was, and he notes it himself, is that his practice is not practiced throughout Sfarad, uh, but was practiced in the world of Ashkenaz. And on the other hand, the Tosfot, which was the cornerstone of Ashkenazi halacha. Was the position that was adopted later in the world of Sfarad? Interesting twist, and we find it here in the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch uh, in Oro Chaim Simon Tafresh Aleph. You could see it at towards the bottom of footnote two. Says the following: Come and they wrote madli. Come to light. Balayla harishon madli kachad. The first night you light one. Mikan velach mosif olech achad layla. Each night you add one more. until on the last night you have eight. Even if you have a lot of people in the house, you don't light more than that. In other words, he's taking the position like Tosfot, which means that each house should have just one candle and the second night just two candles, and that's it regardless of how many people in the house. And now the Ramah, Ramah She'isalus of Krakow, slightly older colleague of Rabbi Yosef Karo, and his glosses on the Shulchan Aruch says, he says, some people that each say that each person in the house should light. Now, interesting, the editor, this is not the Ramah's writing, the editor put in a parenthesis that said Harambam, that associated this opinion with the Rambam. I put on the source sheet a uh, highlighted question mark, because that's not the Rambam. The Rambam doesn't say that everybody lights their own candle. The Rambam says that the head of the household lights per amount of people in the house. But regardless, um, this is this the Ramah's opinion, and then he says, v'chein hamihag pashut." The Ramah says that is the common custom, which is to have each person light, which, of course, is an interesting twist. I just showed that for the, for the, uh, for the interest of it. Okay, so these are the sugyot that we have. Uh, eight, seven of these eight sugyot are germane to our discussion. Again, we're skipping over number four for our analysis, because we have lots of confusion going on between um, the timing, the location, where everything is happening. So before you flip up the page... Um, i got to go back to, to what I said in, in the last shiur uh, and then add to it, which is that, again, when we're reading Gemara, we're not reading a prepared book. We're not even reading a direct transcript. What we're reading is layers upon layers of discussions, of quotations that took place in Bet Midrash, in, in some cases in Yerushalayim, but typically not, uh, the very, very early uh, Mishnayot that we have and records that we have, but for the most part in the Galil and in uh, Yavne and in, and in other parts of Israel, Kisari, et etc., and, um, and, and in Bavel, and at different times. Now, we have an era that we refer to as the Tanaitic era, but it's the era of the Chachamim who operated from roughly the turn of the millennium until around the beginning of the 3rd century, whose names appear in the Mishnayot and in the Breitot, and their names we're all familiar with, Rabbi Yez, Rabbi Yoshua, and then Rabbi Kiv, and Rabbi Shmael, and uh, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Huda, Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Yossi, and then Rabbi Huda Anasi, and then the leaders, Rabbi Gamliel Hazakim, Mishim Gamliel of the Destruction, Rabbi Gamliel of Yavner, Mishim Gamliel, and then Rabbi, uh, and we're familiar with those names. Uh, afterwards, we have a period that we refer to as the Amoraic period. I say we refer to it because both Tana and Amora don't mean these things, but we're going to leave that alone for right now. We refer to it as the Amoraic period, which is roughly from about the year 225 or so till about the year 450, uh, perhaps a little earlier than that. And that refers to the named sages that appear in both Talmudim, uh, both Talmud Yushalmi and Talmud Bavli, who participate in discussions during those periods. Uh, the Talmud-Yerushalmi kind of ceased its uh, activity in the middle of the 4th century. That's the latest discussions that we have. And, um, and, but in Bavel, the discussions continued. And the, the latest names that we have are from what we call the 7th or 8th generation, which is the generation after Rav Marvina, Mavina takes us to near the end of the 5th century. But there are continued discussions that take place And we have lots of discussions in the Bavli where we don't hear names. Meaning, names are mentioned of earlier Chachamim, whose words are being discussed, but the people doing discussing aren't mentioned. And we refer to that in our style of learning as the Gemara says, or the Gemara asks. all right. But we don't have names. And that era is known as the period of the Stamaim. Stamaim means unnamed, basically anonymous. And um, and so we have to keep in mind that when we're looking at the Gemara, we're looking at early Mishnayot, later Mishnahot. last time we talked about chronological layers in a Mishnah, Mishnayot and Breitot, early and late. Then we're looking at Shmatot of the what we call the Amoraim, the halachic rulings of those rabbis, both in Bavel and Eretz Yisrael. The rulings in Eretz Yisrael get brought to Bavel through the Nechute, the people who travel and bring them because they're all oral, nothing's written down and subsequently the discussions that took place in the Beit Midrash among the Stamaim. There's a later period of the Suraim we're not going to touch today. That's one kind of layering, but there's another kind of layering that goes on also, and that's what I want to introduce here, and that is geographic layering. In other words, Torah will come from Eretz Yisrael and will come to Bavel, but in many cases it will be shaped into a Babylonian, it'll take a Babylonian shape. And sometimes that's something as simple as nuance or even spelling, or meaning some, the way something is pronounced. Um, and uh, the two regions did sometimes poke at each other about the way that they pronounced things, uh, letters they weren't able to say, or vowels they had problems uh, enunciating properly. Um, and But it also takes on a bavli flavor when it comes to certain orientations. So what I've done on this page, on page two, is to color code every one of the to- says, uh, texts that we used. And underneath, I put a key. And I'll explain the key first, and then we're going to go through it. The first thing I have is keywords. Now, keywords words are something employed by the editors of the Gemara, who introduce a statement. They introduce a statement by either just saying Amar and the name of the person who said it. Sometimes they'll say Toshma, which just introduces a statement. But sometimes they'll use words like Tanan, Ketiv, Tanya, um, Rabbanan, which introduce different kinds of texts. So Tanan or Tana introduces a Mishnah. Tanya or Tana rabbanan introduces a braita, Tana rabbanan usually introduces a specific of a Tosefta. Um, itmar introduces a Memra. Ketiv introduces a Pasuk. And so, Q words are important to know, but remember, they're they're external from the text. They're introductions to the text. Okay. Um, what I have in blue is Breitot of Eretz Yisrael, E-Y. Eretz Yisrael Breitot. All right. And what I have in red is Bavli Shmata. Again, Shmata is the teachings um, of the, uh, of Bavel uh, that are halachic teachings. Um and that are typically from the period after the after the Tanaim, after the Mishnah. We then have Bavli Stama, which I have in red with a blue highlight, and that is the anonymous layer that happens later. And then I used green to use the introduction of the reports of the Nechute. Whenever we have a report coming from Mary to Israel, then I marked it that way, just not the words, not the report itself, but just the introduction, so that when you read it, you know what's coming. And then I used a different color for the scholion, which, again, we're not going to touch. The reality is that for our purposes, the only thing that's really critical here is the, is the uh, blue and the red. Uh, and again, not a political statement in that, but the reason I'm mentioning that is because starting really with uh, levy Ginsburg. And then uh, later on, um, other scholars, including Shama Friedman and Moshe Benovitz, others have contributed to our understanding of this sugya, Rosenthal also of this sugya, um, and have suggested, and these are suggestions that themselves are layered and built on each other, that what we're looking at in our sugyot, uh, the first couple sugyot, is really a Babylonian formation of an Eretz Israel meaning that it includes Babylonian additions and Babylonian appropriations. So let's take a look. Here's the suggestion of how to read it. and we read it this way, every one of the questions that we ask suddenly disappears. But I have to preface it with uh, the following. Um, Important to note that, first of all, Bavel and Eretz Israel during this entire period, and later than this period, because even though the academies in Eretz Israel ceased to function, with the same robustness that they had after the 4th century, uh, and therefore the project that we know as the Talmud Yerushalmi really ceased to operate by the middle of the 4th century or so. Uh, nonetheless, life in Eretz Yisrael continued, Jewish life continued, scholarship continued, and practices continued. And Bavel and Eretz Yisrael had different customs in a whole range of areas. Uh, in Nusach of Tfilah in uh, customs relating famously to Kriyat Torah in Bavel. The cycle was a one-year cycle in Eretz Yisrael, it was a three-and-a-half-year cycle, and that continued into the 12th century in Eretz Yisrael uh, as the three-and-a-half-year cycle of reading, and many other things. And there's actually a, a compilation from the period of the Go'onim, I believe it's a ninth-century compilation, known as Sefer Hilukim, the book of distinctions in customs between the East and the West, the East being Bavel and the West being Eretz Yisrael, and a whole list of all the things that are different, uh, including, by the way, that in Bavel, they used two loaves at each Shabbat meal. In Eretz Israel they only used one. Uh, it's among the Sefer uh, And for the most part, of course, our practice is Babylonian. That's where the center was through all those years, and that had a huge impact on, uh, on the history of Pesach um, However, uh, when it comes to... Um, to ancient holidays, holidays that are in the Torah, and holidays that were practiced for generations before the exile, and therefore there was a sort of a common uh, take on them. For the most part, and certainly not all the way across the board, but for the most part, practices and attitudes were fairly common. Um, However, for holidays that happened later than that, and I'll give you the two examples that come to mind right away, um, attitudes were different, and in some cases practices were different. Um, in Eretz Israel, the attitude towards Purim, for instance, was much less festive than the attitude towards Bavel. And that's something I covered in a whole different That's That if you look at the Midrash Eretz Israel about Purim and the Midrash Bavel about Purim, you'll see a very different attitude. And it may have even been expressed in certain practices that were different in Bavel than in Eretz Israel. Uh, but remember, Purim is in Tanakh. And the practices of Purim already are happening in Tanakh, as is recorded. At the end of Milad Esther, by Mima is Karim Uh Chanukah, of course, is a post biblical holiday, and uh, Hanukkah uh, happens and its reverberations are felt when there's already a vibrant and somewhat independent Jewish community in Bavel. Not really independent, but somewhat on its own, uh, community in Bavel. And therefore, not only attitudes towards, but even practices were different. Uh, and we will see that now. The, the proposal here is as follows, that in Bavel, the custom was to light one candle. That was it. And if you wanted to really run after mitzvot, mahadrin achar mitzvot, then if you really were eager to do mitzvot, then you would have one per person. That was it. The Eretz Israel position was to light candles corresponding to the day. Let's take a look at it. Tanur Rabbanan. Now I'm going to read just the blue in the first paragraph, and you'll see. So the mitzvah of Chanukah is. Beit Shammai says eight to one. Beit Hillel says one to eight. They're not disagreeing about some super duper level of doing it. As a fact. There is no super-duper we- level of doing it. It's just the basic mitzvah. And the questions we asked about why Beit Shammai and Beit Hilo are disagreeing about some hidur minhai hidur, or, <clears throat> um, or why there even is a third level, suddenly dissipate. That was the practice in Eretz Yisrael. And then we get a report to support that, which is a report from Eretz Yisrael. You see the green. Ula reports that in Eretz Yisrael there was a machloket about Beit Shammai versus Beit Hilo two opinions about what Beit Shammai and Hil were disagreeing about, which of course now makes sense, considering they're disagreeing about the essential mitzvah of, of, of Nerchanukkah. And then we have another report that in Sidon we had one person practicing Beit Shammai, one person practicing Beit Hillel, and the reasons they gave. Now, uh, that one seems to be difficult because, uh, based on this theory, because if Beit Shammai beit Hilal are the essential mitzvah, then how can anybody continue practicing Beit Shammai after Beit Hillel's position has become the normative one throughout halakha? is what I asked last, in last year, and that becomes even harder. But I think that a clear examination will actually make this a little easier. As I mentioned earlier, Soloveitchik suggested, and it seems pretty, pretty straightforward in the Rambam, that the mitzvah of Ner Chanukah was really instituted only after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. That being the case, we have a little bit of a conundrum in our sugya. Uh, Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel are the name of schools. They're not schools as in buildings. They're the name of schools as in followers. And Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel lasts for two generations. There's Beit Shammai, Beit Hillel that we refer to consistently, and those are that's the generation that precedes the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash. And before that, there is the generation that are the direct students of Shammai, Hillel who are known as Ziknei Beit Shammai and Ziknei Beit Hillel. If you're interested, take a look at the Mishnah in the second paragraph of Sukkah, where Beit and Beit Shammai have a disagreement about the proper size of a Sukkah, and Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel say to Beit Shammai, don't you remember, there's a story that Ziknei Beit Hillel and Ziknei Beit Shammai went to visit a certain guy and he had a Sukkah that was like that and they didn't say anything to him, and Beit Shammai's response. So there's two generations of Beit Hilal Beit Shammai. Beit Hillel Beit Shammai do not exist after the destruction. There are people who were, who were students in Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. Rabbi Eliezer famously was a student of Beit Shammai. Beir Bishu was a student of Beit Hillel. They, there are certain traditions continued, but the school, qua the school, as a body of, of position and taking a sak did not exist after the destruction. So it's a little bit difficult if the mitzvah of Neer Chanukah was only instituted after the destruction to talk about Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai taking positions on how to practice that mitzvah. And therefore, the suggestion has been made, and I think there's a lot to recommend it, that Beit Hillel here may actually be sort of cognomens, like nicknames for different schools, but not really Beit Hillel, who have this position, and, uh, and that there were the different schools that existed, and as evidenced by the fact that some people did this way and some people did that way. Some people lit 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Other people lit 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 and they were both, though both positions were accepted. But regardless, that's certainly the case, that B'tsham B'thillah were both still being practiced. Okay, in the next sugya, and now going back to the Bavli, the red mark, mitzvat chanukah what does Bavel add into the B'rightah? Our practice, our practice is ishu VeTo, Ve'am mahadrin, In Bavel, we have one candle per house. And the people who are very zealous to do more have one per person. And we look at Eretz Yisrael as being Mahadrin, min Mahadrin. So they add that line in. But that's not part of the original statement or Brighta. Okay, now take a look at the next Sugya. I mentioned that in all of the Bavli sources, Nerchanukah is referred to in the feminine. Uh, and in the Eretz Yisraeltic source, and I'll show you now one example, although in every source it's like this. Take a look at footnote four. Masachat Sofrim, um, which is a later compilation of Minhage Beit Knesset, Min Hagei, uh, 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 Safrut also, um, refers to Nerchanuk and says, the Mitzvah of Lighting It, and It in the Masculine, um, and that's true about all Eretz Yisrael Dikor sources, including the Pesik derabati, later midrashim, to refer to Hanukkah. So neir mitzvah lahaniha means we have a brighta here, but this brighta, is, as I mentioned, been reworked into a Babylonian style, which is to feminize the ending. No big deal there, but what what the ruling here is altep petach b'tom bakhutz imayad darba and again feminine bchalonas puchal reshut rabim. So that's an Eretz Yisrael Dikor statement. It takes on a Babylonian flair, no big deal. But then, when there's times of danger, then you put it on your table and that's enough. And what remember what Rashi said that danger is referring to a Babylonian problem after the period of the Mishnah, the middle of the third century or later. And so, therefore, the theory goes that we again have a hybrid sugya, where the essential sugya is Eretz Yisrael, it has a slight reworking of Bavel with Lahanicha and Menichah. And then the, andi- the ending is the Babylonian adaptation or addition, which is necessary because they really couldn't afford to put it outside certain times, certain years, and had to put it inside. That then leads us to the next statement. And from here on, the statements are fairly straightforward. Rava says, You need another candle. Why? Because in Rava's world, there's only one candle. Second night, third night, fourth night, only one candle. And therefore, anybody passing by will think you're using it to read, won't know about the nace, you need another one. Now, um, the next got number five, Rava says, that just supports the idea that in Bavel they referred to it in the feminine. Rav Huna says, if you have a courtyard that has only two, that has two separate, uh, Entrances and they're not next to each other. You can't one can't be seen from the other. You need two nerot. Again, we asked, how come on the second night doesn't say you need four nerot? The answer is because they never lit four nerot in Bavel. They lit one nair per household. Second night, third night, fourth night. Beit weren't players there. This Mosif Pochet v'olech, m- m- uh, volech weren't weren't at all um, uh, practiced, and that's why the only discussion about Beit versus Beit and the reasoning for it takes place in Eretz Yisrael as reported by Ula. That's why Ravuna says if you have a nair that has two openings and you pop wicks in it, then it'll count for two people, but not for two nights because two nights is no different than one night, meaning the first night and the second night are the same. Two people would mean either that my neighbor and I want to join together and put it at a common doorway, not likely, or more likely it means I'm doing and I got two people in the house. So I take one thing, fill it up, pop two wicks in, separate them out, light them, and they count as mahadrin. Beautiful. And Rava then says the same thing, just extends it out. You fill a bowl with oil, put a clea on top of it with holes, and you got a bunch of wicks. Then that many people, so I got 12 people in the house, I got 12 wicks. That's my Nair. And the same thing the next night. But no way in Bavel are we going to have twice as many candles the second night or eight times as many candles on the last night. And so that's how we take a look at the Sugya. And suddenly, all of the different components of the Sugya come together. And understanding this is essentially a hybrid. (coughs) between the the core teachings from Eretz Yisrael, which may or may not be breitot, meaning they may be a little bit later than that, or they may be later breitot, uh, and Beit Sharmad Hillel may be kind of borrowed names. uh, But regardless of that, that there's bavli information woven in and adapting uh, onto the breitah and such that both practices kind of get welded together. Now, we're going to finish by going back to page one and looking at Tosafot versus the Rambam, Tosafot versus the Rambam may actually, which is traditionally understood as being uh, exactly what Tosafot says, it is a question about whether Mahadri and Mahadri is an add-on to Mahadri or is an alternative to Mahadri. Uh, Maybe something else. Um, Tosafot may be taking the position that. Um, that the sugyot, sugyot are all, the, the, the Rambam, taking the position, the Sugyot ultimately, even if they came from different sources, all got melded together. And the fact that in Bavel they read all of them together and fused it together, and they weren't using color coding, obviously, meant that ultimately they adopted this position that the basic mitzvah is one, the Mahadrin is one per person, and the Mahadrin is one per person, keep adding each night the way the Rambam presents it. Tosafot, however, may be of the opinion that really, essentially, the sugyot are separate, and that there is and and since the choices were basically mahadrin bavel one per person, mahadrin eretz yisrael at a night, therefore Tosafot said we rule like eretz yisrael, and therefore we take the cor, the kor mitzvah is one per household. That's if you don't have, but otherwise the mitzvah is. I keep adding every night. And the middle position, Mahadrin, becomes non-existent because perhaps in Tosfot's world, Tosfot saw that this these sugyot were really a Bavli sugyah versus an Eretz Yisrael The fact that Bavel adopted the Eretz Yisrael position means that perhaps it was ceding its own position and saying, since you can't have both, we're going to take the Eretz Yisrael position. And therefore Tosfut says, you have one candle per person. Second night, two candles per person, even if a lot of people are in the house. Okay, we'll pick it up in the next shiur. We're going to look at the sugya at Mashot, which is towards the end of Perak Everybody should have a wonderful day and a chag kasher Sameach.